Thank you. I'm super excited to be here this weekend. This is a very special weekend. It's Memorial Day weekend. It's a weekend where we can honor and remember those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice for our nation ever since the beginning of our nation. Um, from the Revolutionary War to the conflict in the Middle East and everything in between, there's always been a select few men and women who have stood up and gave their life so that we may have freedom. And as we talk about this weekend, one word is thrown around a lot, that's sacrifice. Sacrifice is what this weekend's about. So in preparation for the sermon, what better topic to talk about than sacrifice itself? And so for those who... Um, uh, gave their life, we honor, remember them. And for those, as Zach said, uh, there's a lot of people waking up this morning holding a picture frame, wondering why their parent or their child or loved one or spouse couldn't come home. And we pray for those. But this weekend, we're going to talk about sacrifice. We're going to talk about the atonement, which is the greatest sacrifice ever made. Atonement, by its very definition, is the reparation for a wrong or evil act, it's righting the wrong. And on a more theological sense, it's the reconciliation of God and humankind through Jesus Christ. Uh, it's how Jesus came into this world and lived a life that you and I couldn't live. And then he, in obedience and love, went to the cross and bore the wrath of God for the sins of the world so that we may live. Now, this may be a new concept to you or maybe one you're very familiar with. However, this is something we should preach to ourselves daily because the atonement is a cornerstone of our gospel, the gospel message we preach. I heard a story of a preacher being asked to come to a church as a guest and speak. And the church called him and said, Brother, we'd love if you came, but before you start to prepare for your sermon, you need to know that we are an advanced church. Uh, most of us are saved and have been saved for decades, and we're very solid theo uh, on theology. So as you prepare to come and preach to us, just keep that in mind. Uh, we want to hear the best of the best. And so the man, a few weeks later, showed up at the church, and they were excited. And they said, Brother, what are you preaching on this morning? And the pastor said, I'm preaching the gospel. Kind of took back. They said, did, did you not hear? We're a mostly saved church. And before the man could go on rambling about how theologically sound they were, the pastor cut him off and said, good. Then it will be the greatest message they ever heard. Because the gospel message is not something we hear once and put in our back pocket. It's something we preach to ourselves daily. And this atonement that we talk about, this sacrifice of this weekend, one verse really comes to mind. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. It states this. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does this mean, that Jesus, who was sinless, became sin? If your friend... Or family member asks, could you give them an answer? And if you struggle, the, tr the truth is, if we have a hard time answering this question, we'll have a hard time preaching it to ourselves. And hopefully this morning, after we leave of, uh, talking of the atonement, we have a better understanding of who God is and his love for us. Now, this picture of atonement is painted all throughout Scripture. Our verse today is 2 Corinthians 5.21, but we're going to be looking at how this is painted all throughout Scripture and how God's love is the underlining story. And we'll waste no time this morning. We'll get directly into it. To understand the atonement, there's some things that we must grasp. Firstly, to understand the atonement, we must know Christ's sinlessness. This verse of 2 Corinthians says, He made him 
who knew no sin. This is fundamental to understand that firstly, that Jesus was the God-man. He was 100% God and 100% man. And in Jesus' humanity, he did not sin. John 1.14 says that in the word, a title for God became flesh, a title for man, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when we read that he dwelt with us, it was not merely that he just dwelt with us in physical location, but that he dwelt with us because he was man like you and me. He grew hungry like you and I grow hungry. He grew tired and weary as we grow tired and weary. We see an image in the garden of where he is sweating blood, which is actually something that you and me can suffer from. Medical doctors have proven this. But the greatest image that Jesus became fully man is also that he was tempted like you and me. Jesus was born into a fallen world. He was God incarnate. And we even see pictures of the devil himself tempting Jesus in the wilderness. But make no mistake that this part of Scripture is not the only time Jesus was tempted. He was tempted every day. Sin knocked at the door. But the difference between Christ and us is that he did not give in to sin through his humanity. Hebrews chapter 4 paints this picture of Christ being the high priest. And it says in chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who is tempted in all things as we are. Yet, here's the difference, without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The difference of Christ's humanity is that he did not give in to sin, yet without sin. He was the better Adam before the fall. His, that sin nature did not dwell within him. And we're going to look at in a minute the, sacri- the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And when an animal would be brought to kill for the sin of a nation, it couldn't just be any animal. It had to be a spotless animal. And we see that when Christ be- took on flesh, dwelt among us, and lived a life without sin, he became that perfect, sufficient, spotless lamb. But not only did Jesus' humanity not give him a sin, but he was the God-man. His deity could not sin. Deity meaning that he was God. We, this may help how we define sin. See, some people say that sin is just anything in the Bible that says, thou shalt not blank. And as long as it's not in the blank, then you're good. And we know that there's some truth to that because we have reverence for the word of God. You know, some people might say, well, sin's anything that hurts your neighbor or yourself. And then, well, that's true because sin has a consequence This is too exclusive. Sin is anything that goes against the nature of who God is. If he is truly the standard of goodness, the epitome of holiness, and the mark of righteousness, anything that wavers or goes against him must be sin. The author Hebrews expands on this as well. Hebrews chapter 7, a few chapters over, it says in verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. But listen to these characteristics being given to Jesus here. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. These attributes cannot be applied to man on this earth, especially man of a fallen world. These titles and attributes are reserved for God himself. And so is the author of Hebrews uh, contradicting himself in Hebrews 4 and 7? No. He's showing the fullness of who God is, Jesus Christ. He was the God-man, 100% of each, not lacking in any. And as we look at the atonement, we see that not only shows who he is in his fullness, but that his absent relation 
ship of sin was a foundation for our atonement. That when he went and bore our sins upon the cross that we sang about earlier, that because he was sinless in his life, we know that it's sufficient. R.C. Sproul states this about the deity in Christ's sinlessness. It says, when we, he says, when we speak of Christ's sinlessness, we genuinely refer to his humanity, which is necessary. However, it is unnecessary to plead the sinlessness of Christ as God, because God, by our definition, cannot and does not sin. The sinlessness of Christ does not merely serve as an example to us. It also is fundamental to know who he is and the truth of our salvation. And because Christ was sinless, we can draw close to the throne of grace with confidence, as Hebrews 4 says, because he lived a life that we couldn't, that atonement was sufficient. Secondly, we see to understand the atonement, we must know it was God's construction. This was his work above all else. This was not something man could do. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. What does that mean? That he became sin. There's a few things that we have to lay down first. First, sin caused a separation. You may ask, and I've heard it questioned before, if God's all-powerful and good, could he have not just snapped his finger and all the sin of the world, all the evil and war and all the bad things would have just went away and have been like we were in the garden before the fall? But when we ask this question, it's not that we misunderstand God and his power. It's that we misunderstand who we are. Because if God was to snap his finger of evil, well, he might as well be just ridding the world of us. And, for the th- and due to the fall of man and sin, there's been a gap created between man and God. And this separation cannot be closed off man's efforts. But for thousands of years, we've seen man try to close that gap. We do this even in the church today. We try to go to church enough, read our Bible enough, pray, our, pray enough, get baptized. And if we do these things, then we can close that gap to be with God. And while these are things that we should do because we're commanded, these on our efforts will not close this gap caused by sin. Genesis chapter 3, Zach's done a great job in the last uh, series talking about 12 essential conversations. Uh, and he's been walking through Genesis. But looking back, we see that even man tried to do this in Genesis After Adam and Eve uh, ate of the fruit and sinned, it says in Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They had a revelation of their sin and shame. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. And while it is important to note that the fig leaves themselves were insufficient to cover the shame of Adam and Eve, the greatest insufficiency in this verse is that it was based off their efforts, not God's. And so when we look at when man tries to close this gap and enter into the presence of God with unatoned sin and shame, he will not allow it. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look at wickedness with favor. And we've seen that man tries to close this gap for thousands of years. And until he returns, there will be people trying to close this. But this gap cannot be closed by any man. It can only be closed by God because the atonement is God's construction. And secondly, we see because we cannot close this and God does it for us, God calls for sacrifice. This is how he means to close this gap of sin and shame. Genesis chapter 3 verse 21 says this. 
the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Because they could not do it through their efforts, God came in love and did it for them. But this act of love came at a cost. It says that there was skin that covered them. So obviously something had to die. There had to be bloodshed. There had to be death. And we sometimes want to recluse at this thought that God would call for death. It's almost as if it's a picture of wrath or hatred for sin. And some people will go as far to say in our society that God does not hate. And if he is, he's not a God I want to worship. But this plays into the fact that we view hate as always sinful. And there is absolutely sinful hate in our world. You can turn on the news, and it doesn't matter which news station you turn on, you can see sinful hate being played out in our society. But there is a righteous, good hate that goes against that which destroys. I'll give you an example. I have two beautiful daughters. I love them. Therefore, because I love them, I must hate what hurts them. I love the sanctity and covenant of marriage. Therefore, I must hate divorce. I love the beauty of life. Therefore, I must hate murder. I love the innocence of children. Therefore, I must hate abortion. You can't love without hating that which destroys what you love. And so when we view God, he is love. It's who he is. It's his attribute. He is not wrath and hate, but he possesses wrath and hate against that which destroys, and that is sin. Sin destroys his creation. And due to the righteousness and goodness of God and what we're about to see, ultimately his love, he must punish sin because it goes against who he is as God. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7 says, The Lord... The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And we read that and we say, yes, amen. That's a God I can worship. But look at this next part. Yet, yet he will by no means lead the guilty unpunished. And we see that this image of atonement where God calls for sacrifice is all throughout Scripture. We see it in Genesis chapter 3 when God covers Adam and Eve's shame. We see it in probably the greatest image of Christ in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16. It's the instructions for the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, where man could enter into the Holy of Holies, which was like the presence of God. And God lays down the foundation of how this is to happen. And just a side note, arguably the most important words in this passage is Leviticus 16 verse 1, where it says, The Lord spoke to Moses. This wasn't anything that Aaron and Moses could huddle up and brainstorm to figure out a way how to enter in the presence of God with unatoned sin. This wasn't something Adam and Eve couldn't do. It's not something you and I can do. God had to come down to them and say, this is the pathway. And I am laying it out before you. I'm laying down the foundation so that you can be right with me. But the beauty of this passage is though sacrifice is called, God offers a substitute. Another outcome for victory. And we see that there's actually three animals here in this passage. And we don't have time to cover this entire passage in its fullness. Um, uh, but in Leviticus 16, verse 15, we first see that there's a, there's a ram that has to be killed for the sins of Aaron and his family. And then here in verse 15, there's a second goat who's killed for the sins of Israel. It says, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. And bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. But listen to this. He 
shall make atonement for the holy place. Right the wrong. Because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And this is an image of wrath being laid upon an animal. And what we see is that actually after this animal, the second animal, there's a third goat. And Aaron will lay his hands on this goat and the sins of Israel will be placed upon this goat and be sent off in the wilderness to die alone. And we ask, Cody, why is there so much death and blood? Because atonement can only come through sacrifice. In fact, the very next chapter in Leviticus 17 verse 11, it answers this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And you may be sitting here saying, Cody, this is just an Old Testament thing. You know, just where they would go and kill animals. You know, that really doesn't apply to us today. No, the, the wages of sin has always been death according to Romans. In Genesis chapter 2, it says the day you eat of that fruit, you shall surely what? Die. And from the beginning until the end, the punishment for sin has always been death. And God calls for that sacrifice because he is a good and just God. But here's the thing. Why are we not killed instantly the moment we sin? Because God in his mercy and for his glory and what we're going to see is his love for you and me allows a substitute. Another outcome of victory over this debt that we owed of this sin to a holy and righteous God. And this was the will of God to lay down this foundation of atonement so that man could live. And thirdly, we're going to see that Jesus was the suffering substitute. The sin caused the gap and God calls for sacrifice. But the thing about the day of atonement was it was momentary. Because Israel would go and sin again. And there would be another day of atonement. And another bull. And another goat. And more blood. And more sacrifice. But Jesus, but Jesus is going to be the perfect, everlasting work of atonement. The perfect sacrifice. And we see that throughout all of Scripture, the work of God has pointed to Christ on the cross. Not just so that God can show his wrath, because he doesn't have to show that to anyone. But in his love for you, he allowed his son to stand in his wrath so that you may live. 700 years before Christ was even born, Isaiah spoke of this constructed atonement of God's work. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 9, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth. And what does that sound like? It sounds like 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin. But look at this next part, verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, to be a guilt offering. And we read this language that says, it pleased the Lord. Don't be mistaken. This wasn't like a joyous humor. This was his one and only son. The one who came to not condemn the world, but to save it. The one who, the only person to ever walk this earth that did not deserve the wrath of his father, yet he bore it. What it means when it says it pleased him, it means that his wrath and justice was satisfied. 
So that sin debt was no longer owed for the church. And this weekend, we talk about sacrifice. The word is thrown around. This is the image of sacrifice. And make no mistake, it was not Pilate that satisfied the wrath of God. It was not the Roman soldiers who satisfied the wrath of God. It was not the false trial where a wicked man went free and an innocent one was found guilty that satisfied the wrath of God. Though these were wondrous acts of sacrifice made by the Son of God and fulfilled the scriptures of what would be, what satisfied the wrath of God was that his son bore the sins of the world. And in Matthew 27, verse 46, we see what happens. It says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus Christ cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's so much about this verse that I'll never understand until I'm glorified with Christ. But I know this, that the word forsaken means to abandon to leave, to turn your face against. I've heard it said before that when Jesus proclaimed, why have you forsaken me, Father? It's as if the Father looked at his son and said, I never knew you. Habakkuk 1.13, you appear eyes in the look at evil and cannot look at wrong. This is sacrifice. This is the sacrifice of the, for the world. Not merely so that we can have liberty on an earthly level, but that we can have freedom from sin and death. That the Son went and stood in the place of His Father's wrath. And I've heard it said before, and I want to squash it and attack it right now. I've heard people say that the cross is cosmic child abuse. And that could not be further from the truth because the Son, on His own fruition, on His own choosing, in obedience to His Father and His love for the church, went and bore that cross Himself. Now, this wasn't an easy task. Even in the garden, he wrestled with it. He said, my father, this cup cannot pass unless I drink it. Talking about the cup of his wrath, the idea that he would have to bear the sins of the world. But ultimately, he said, your will be done. And I love my bride, the church, those who are in faith, and I will go and die so that they may live, so that your wrath of the father may be satisfied. We sang that great hymn a minute ago in Christ Alone. And there was a denomination a few years ago, um, not a Baptist denomination, who they lobbied to change the hymnal in, in their church. A few people said that the line in Christ alone that says, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Some people said that that needed to be removed because it didn't paint a good image of God, a God of wrath. They said, where's the love? And some even said, where's the hope? The church family, what do you mean, where's the hope? It's our only hope that we can stand before a holy God and his wrath not be placed upon us because his love came first, because his son stood for us. And this is the atonement. This is our gospel, that the son of God stood in the wrath of the father for us and that our wrongdoing before the Lord would be paid for and we could be found blameless, the people who deserve blame the most and Christ came and became sin so that we may live thirdly we'll see to understand the atonement we must know the product of the atonement 
it says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean? Firstly, it means that we can receive grace through faith. There's a belief that all people go to heaven. It's called universalism. It goes against the teachings of Scripture, and it goes against the teachings of Christ. So how is this atonement applied? By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's talking about you, me, and everyone in between. But look at the language here of how this was God's work. It says, And are justified by His grace as a gift, His work. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, his work, whom God put forth as a propitiation, his work, by his blood, which is his sacrifice, to be received by what? Faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we'll see that this has always been the story. It wasn't religious relics and practices that Aaron could uh, enter into the presence of God. It was faith. When he laid his hands on that goat, it's an act of faith. And so what do we put our faith in? We put our faith in the work and life of Christ. And I want to make something clear. Not merely that we just believe in him. Because even James says even the demons believe, yet they still shudder. It means surrendering. Giving and all saying, God, your will be done because you love first. And I have no choice but to love and serve you and be in relationship. And through faith, we can enter into this grace and become the righteousness of God through the work of Christ. Secondly, we see that we can walk with the Spirit because of this. This is why we get to preach this gospel even after we're saved. Because life doesn't end at salvation, it's the beginning. And 1 John 4, 13 and 14 says this, By this we know we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And this Holy Spirit is just as much God as the Father and Son. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And through quick examinations of Scripture, I can tell you this, that God does not save a person and leave them where they are. There's an image of a new birth, a new spirit, taking off the old and putting on the new. And walking with the Spirit is a walk of sanctification, which is just a fancy word of pursuing God while trying to kill sin. It's not perfection. Um, you can look at me and see that it's not perfection. And my wife says amen. And, uh, but I think the Holy Spirit and the fact that we get to walk with him is the greatest image and proof that we don't have to clean ourselves up to go to God. We come to him and say, God, I'll never make myself clean. And he says, I know, but here is my Spirit. And because we can walk with the Spirit, we get to partake in the righteousness of God through the work of Christ. But thirdly, we can look forward to that final day. We walk through a world of despair and hurt. And it's because of sin and fall. But there's coming a day where God will right all the wrong. Paul Washer, I heard an analogy he gave one time. That after the fall, it's as if God with one hand began to hold back his wrath. And with his other hand, he began drawing people to him. He said, come to me, those who I know by name. Come to me, those who are weary and hurting. Come to me, those in need of a Savior. But on that final day, what's going to happen? 
is the hand that's holding back the wrath of God and the hand that's drawing will both be dropped. And the unadulterated wrath of God will meet the earth and correct all that was wrong. So what happens to those who are in faith on that day? Those free hands will grab the church, those who are in faith, and pull them in as a groom pulls in his bride. And Revelation paints this picture. In verse 20, chapter 21, verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. Because through the atonement of Christ, we get to partake in the righteousness of God, and we can look forward to that final day because of it. But lastly, we're going to see that to understand the atonement, we must know its sufficiency. Why preach something to yourself that isn't good enough or everlasting? No, it will always and forever be sufficient. Firstly, there's a few ways we can know it. Firstly, it's sufficient because of the proclamation of Jesus. He says from the cross, it is finished, in John 19, verse 30. And when he said it is finished, it was finished because the prophecies had been fulfilled. The wrath and justice of God was being satisfied. But this word being used here in John 19, 30, that says to telestai, it's to telestai, it's to say it is finished. It was actually kind of a business term, meaning that the payment is completed, paid in full. If you ever get the opportunity to um, pay off a car one day or a house or a loan, it's a really great feeling. When you pay off it, they hand you a little piece of paper that say you don't own anything anymore. They hand you that title. You can go home and you can hold on to that title. And you say, because I have this title, I know that the bank ain't going to come knocking. The repo man's not going to be in my driveway. The loan sharks aren't going to call me anymore. It is mine. And when Jesus said, it is finished from the cross, it's as if he said, they're mine. The church is mine. Those in faith are mine, and they owe nothing more. And here's the beauty of this. Jesus, going back to who he was as the God-man, 100% God, when he said it, it's not as if it was words just floating in the air. It's as if it was written in the foundation of the earth because of who he was. So we know it's sufficient because of his proclamation. But secondly, we know it's sufficient because of the resurrection. See, Jesus didn't just bear the wrath of God and die, and that was the end of the story. No, three days later, he rose again. He wasn't like that lamb on the day of atonement, or that goat on the day of atonement that would go off and die in the wilderness, never to be seen again. He's a king sitting on a throne living. Romans chapter 6, verse 9 says this, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. And what do we get to do because we know that to be true? For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He lives, and we sing that hymn, he lives, he lives. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Look at the, When you read this verse, think about the tense. What 
the word tense? Is it talking about the past, the current, or the future? It says in Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. Consequently, he is currently able to save those who are currently drawing near to God. And since he always is currently and forever will be living, he makes intercession for them. And being right with God no longer takes a go on a day. It takes the everlasting work of Christ through his life, death, and resurrection and faith in him. And we know because Jesus lives that the atonement was sufficient. And thirdly, we know it's sufficient because of the righteousness of Christ. Going back to who he was. You may say today, Cody, it's great that there's a Savior out there, a God who's saving people. But you, you don't know what I've done. You know, the things I've said, the places I've been, the crimes I've committed. And you're right. I don't know what you've done. But I know Jesus. And I know that so many people think that what salvation is is walking up to the scale and putting all the good things you've done on one side and all the bad things you've done on the other. And if the good outweigh the bad, then I guess you get to punch your ticket to heaven. But this isn't what's taught in Scripture. It's a lie. That goes back to it being based off your efforts and not God's. A more accurate picture is this, that you can walk up to the scale and you can put everything you've ever done, the good and the bad, every time you've committed a crime, every addiction that you have ever faced, every time you failed your family, your spouse or your kids, you can put all the times you blaspheme against God and disappointed yourself in the world and you can place it all on one side and then in faith you can put step to the other side and put one thing and one thing alone and that be Christ Jesus and he'll outweigh it all. If you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. The insufficiency of man will never outweigh the sufficiency of God. Your wretchedness will never outweigh his righteousness. Your depravity will never outweigh his holiness. Your rebellion against him will never outweigh his steadfast love for you. Because of who he is. A holy, righteous, loving God that sent his son to die and rise again so that you may live. And you may be struggling with this today. And this may be something that's on your heart about giving your life to Christ through faith. And you just don't know if it's worth it. I can promise you it's worth it. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. In fact, it's not the easiest thing to follow Christ. It's quite hard in a world that hates him. But I can show you how I know it's worth it. Because I pray this life for my children. I pray from the moment we found out that my wife was pregnant with our first daughter, we began to pray that the Lord would save her at an early age. And you say, Cody, everyone does that. Make no mistake. When we pray that they come to know the Lord, we're not just praying that they pray before they eat or go to church once in a blue moon. You hope they do those things. I'm praying that they become radical for Christ. That they put their whole life in faith in Him. 
that His will will always come before theirs or prosperity or uh, success or anything. And this life is hard. And they may end up working in a nine-to-five job and have a white picket fence house with two and a half kids. And if that's the case, good. Praise God. I hope they're radical in it. I hope they get passed up for promotions because they won't stop talking about Jesus at work. I pray they won't stop gospel sharing to the world. And if they have to come to me and their mother one day and say, Mom, Dad, I feel like I'm called to the nations, to a place that hates the name of Jesus, I pray that we have the strength to put that backpack on them and say, Go. Go and share the gospel because Jesus is worth it. It's worth so much more than anything else. And no loving father would pray this life for their children if it wasn't worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. Because of what he did on the cross. Because he first loved us. Because the atonement was sufficient an image of his love. And yes, the cross, on one side you see the wrath, the hatred for sin and the judgment. But on the other side you see the purest form of mercy, sacrifice, and love and grace. And this atonement is why we have so much confidence as the church. I'm going to ask Micah to come on up. You may be here today and you don't have that relationship with Christ. And when I say this, I'm not saying that you just merely believe Him, like I said earlier, that you truly don't have a relationship with Him. And if that's the case, then don't wait because He's worth it. And there's coming a day He's going to drop both those hands as we said earlier. Don't wait because He's worth it. He's worth so much more And, I'm, and we're about to sing this song and we're going to have some pastors down at the front. And I'm going to ask for you to do a, a weird churchy thing. And it is a weird thing. But we're going to ask you, if that's you today, and you need to give your life to Christ and just get down on your face and say, Lord, I surrender. And we're just going to ask you to slide out of your aisle and come on down and talk to one of us. But I can promise you this. We're just going to love and want to talk to you. And if you won't stand for Christ in a room full of believers, you'll probably struggle to stand with them in a world that hates them. You may be here today and you're thinking about making Ian and Baptist your home church. If that's the case, we'd love to have you and we'd love for you to come talk with us. Or you may be here today and you are in the faith. 2 Corinthians 15, I'm sorry, 13 verse 5 says, you tested the faith and you see that you are found in the truth. And if that's you this morning, then take this gospel message, the message of the atonement, and go and preach it to yourself. Preach it to the world. Every time you wake up and open your eyes, take a deep breath, know that the atonement was applied upon it. And because he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him, we can live. A weekend of sacrifice we see sacrifice in the greatest love story ever told. If you need to slide out of that, come on down. I'll pray and I'll hand it over to Micah. Dear and Father, Lord, just thank you for this day. Thank you for allowing us to come into your church, to come into your presence. And Lord, I 
just pray that you speak to the people in here. If there's someone in here who's struggling with confidence to come to you and put their faith in you, Lord, give them strength. Let them not worry about who's sitting next to them or what people will think. Lord, I pray that if there was anything I said today that was not from you, that it would hit the ground and never be seen again. But Lord, I pray that the only thing that came out of that pulpit this morning was your message, your gospel, and you grabbed the hold of hearts today. And Lord, I pray for the strength of the saints that we can go out into the world preaching this gospel to ourselves every day, renewing the joy of our salvation. Be with us now in your holy and precious name. Amen.